So I got thrust straight into the most violent end of the, the prison system. Everyone's fresh off the street. And mind you, these people have like literally just killed people or you know, insane crimes. Like, What was the time span between you getting like refused bail and you going into like Parkley? Like six hours. <laughs> what? Hey guys, welcome back to 99 Everything with Jonathan Lau. That's me, your host. In the podcast where we are trying to focus on maximizing every facet of our lives. So today we have another very interesting guest. Um, so this guest has been a nationally ranked powerlifter. He's competed in the classic physique division at the last Arnold's. Uh, he used to be an online fitness coach. Um, he's also part of a supplement company called Eagle and also recently started an anti-aging company. So very, very interesting resume here. But amongst all those highs, there have also been some lows in his journey, including an interesting relationship, I think that we'll delve into in a bit, imprisonment, a lengthy court case too. So based off just how I got to meet this guest, I just started following him on Instagram because he was a pretty, uh, I guess a prominent figure in the um, Sydney powerlifting kind of community. And I actually met him at one of the gyms here. And since then I've just followed his journey and it's, it's literally been like a movie. So without any further ado, I'd like to welcome Oscar Mez. Thank podcast. you for the warm welcome. That was, <laughs> that was great. Thank you. No worries, man. Good to be here. Get straight into it. So Oscar, let's start at the beginning. What was your upbringing like? Um, where did you grow up? And I guess what was your like high school, um, uni experience like? Um, well, I grew up out in the country. So between Capiti and Arcadia, um, I had two parents who were academics and professionals. Uh, they were both vets. So I had like really high expectations of performance in life in general, like right from the get-go. And uh, I think like I had a very strict upbringing. I'm sure you you might you probably relate to that. Mm. Um, it was quite difficult, you know, early on, but I definitely think that sort of patterned behavior later in life. And I think that um, I wasn't grateful for it then, but I am now. Mm. So, Okay, interesting. Uh, what high school did you go to? Um, so, well, I'm actually kind of proud of this, actually. I got a, a scholarship to Hills Grammar School. Mm. And then I got actually recently a, a letter of... Um, basically sort of acknowledgement of performance throughout my time at school. Obviously. And then I ranked, yeah, within the top 10% of the scholarship students oh. combined, so. So they've been following you or something? Yeah. Um, so I started off at a, at a public school, but um, yeah, I was just sort of shoved into merit programs and you know, the after school sort of extra classes and stuff and expected to do well. And I think part of that was a, a sort of an expectation to get a scholarship to a private institution, so mm -hmm. yeah, so that's that was that. Cool. And then I guess what got you into uh, pursuing a law degree? Well, I was kind of lost, to be honest. Um, I didn't really know what to do, and I think a lot of young guys probably come out of high school not really knowing what to do. And I thought, well, I'll start with a generalist degree. I'll do something that will set me up. I'll do something that can be applied as broadly as I can. You know, apply it. Uh, it's something that I thought that could be parlayed into potentially business later on down the line, and effectively I did. Mm -hmm. um, I started off, you know, with the intentions of becoming a lawyer. Um, I guess because there were sort of family expectations of going to a profession like 
the rest of my family have done things like that. My, um, my parents obviously uh, achieved highly and they both had um, postdoctoral theses and academics. Um, yeah, yeah. They were, yeah. And so my grandfather was actually um, head of engineering at Sydney University. So ah. there was a bit of pressure I felt like to, yep. to perform at that level. Um, and it was definitely put on me too. So, but I think sometimes you need that pressure in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that people shy away from pressure and they sort of back out of those kind of um, things that are going to draw the best out of them. So I think mm-hmm. so don't don't shy from that. Mm. You you've graduated from Macquarie, I know now. Um, but I guess when in your I guess law degree did you suddenly want to pivot? Yeah, so that was interesting. I. Uh, I started working in the Landed Environment Court. What was that? I started working in the Landed Environment Court. Okay. Um, which is part of the Supreme Court. And it handles like development uh, appraisals. And um, you basically sort of sit there while they litigate um, minor details of like a, of a DA um, before it gets fully stamped off and approved and um, passed into you know, construction. So. You know, we, we presided over things like the, the construction of Brangaroo. Um, honestly, it was just so tedious. Like, it was just so soul-destroying. Mm. You know, you're sitting there listening to arguments about, like, well, what's the volume of, you know, waste disposal that we can allow for this particular... No one cares. Like, it's yeah. so hard to stay awake yeah. through proceedings like that. And it's just not fulfilling. And although it would have been, like, on paper a fulfilling job and something to be, you know, to be proud of, it was just something I was just like, no, I can't. I can't do this. Interesting. Like, I, I definitely felt like I had this sort of, like, burning fire within myself, some, like, spark, some creative spark that was just completely underserved mm-hmm. in that environment. And I think that a lot of people probably feel like that too. Mm. And I would say to those people that, you know, you should probably listen to that because if you don't, that will manifest itself as you depression. You regret it, eh? Yeah. Yeah, and regret. And you don't want to live a life like that, so it's worthwhile taking that risk. And it was kind of an interesting uh, confluence of events really. Like I was just sharing my training. Um, I always train really hard, almost like performatively so, but like I was super intense. And like, I don't think I was ever built for strength or, or size even, but I think through just through sheer uh, willpower, it was something that I just made happen. And that was sort of obvious to other people um, and it was, it was quite interesting. Like, I remember we were just sitting at a, at a party and there was a bunch of powerlifters talking about this one particular powerlifter, this freak, you know, he's from up north and he's in this dungeon and he's got these like, this Satanist aesthetic. And yeah. I remember we were sitting around looking at the videos and like, oh, these big toted up guys like wearing masks and stuff. Like it was mm-hmm. super scary. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was watching it and I'm like, oh, it's really cool though. It's like, these guys are pretty creative. Mm-hmm. And then seemingly like I sort of summoned it, like the next day, uh, he, he reached out and he responded to a post I made about, you know, a big squat that I did. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he was like, would you like to come train with me? And I was like, hell yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And so I went and did a session with him and, uh, I think that was the first time I squatted 300 kilos. Mm. That was like day one. Wow. And I was just like, this is it. I'm home. Yeah, cool. Like, there was this rush of adrenaline, like, holy shit. Like, I want to feel this every time. Yeah. And finally, I felt like there was, like, this training intensity I had that didn't have a home in a, in a commercial gym. It was, like, not appropriate. It's like, mm-hmm. you can't cut sick like that. It's mm-hmm. not, like, the done thing. Like, there, it made sense. Mm-hmm. And then there, it's actually rewarded. It's not punished. It's not mm-hmm. like you're a weird guy for training like that. Mm-hmm. 
And in that, I found a community. And what I noticed that Reese did really well is that he created very particular branding and a very particular community around that brand. And I think this is something a lot of young entrepreneurs should really take note of because it's like, that's culture. Yep. And the reason why a brand succeeds is because of culture. And you can look at it in the inverse. I mean, look at like uh, Meta. Yep. Um, cataclysmic crash down like 71% year to date. Revenue down over 50%. And that's solely because the culture is so, so toxic now. It's like they've completely destroyed their support base. There's no wind in the sails behind their business because people don't want it to succeed. Because mm. unfortunately, they're a bit heavy handed with censorship and suppression of certain viewpoints. And whether or not those viewpoints are correct, I think that uh, people do not appreciate that. Mm. And that bad ideas can be defeated by good ones. You don't need to cut out a man's tongue. You don't prove him wrong by doing that. Yeah. So, um, basically, I was doing my online training at the same time that I was working in Sydney and then traveling up to train for race and, and getting mentoring strength. And I was trying to do both. And it was really stressful because people were starting to get interested. Like, they were like, oh, this is really cool. Like, it's... That was around... The, I was watching all this on yeah, Instagram. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. And I think the appeal was, was this. Like, in the fitness industry, there's a very particular aesthetic, which is all, like, very smiley and, like, family-friendly. Like, mm. yeah. And ours was compl the complete opposite. Like, we're yeah. not there to make friends. We're there to just, like, cut sick and yeah. unleash on the weights. And it's not PC. It's not family-friendly. It definitely was a PC. And it's raw and it's real. And it's, yeah. it was absolutely authentic. There was nothing fake about it. Mm -hmm. And, like, we got a really good group of, of young guys that, to this day, I still talk to. Mm -hmm. Um, very proud of how far they've come and watching them with their respective journeys and they've all grown as men. Mm. Um, they've got a stiff backbone and I'm very proud of that. And yeah, like that little family has started a little business, right? And you don't need much. Like I think that you've got, you need maybe 10 to 100 people that actually genuine, genuinely believe what you're doing to begin yeah. with. Mm -hmm. um, anyone can achieve that. You don't need like 30,000 followers to do that, 100,000, whatever. I think that you, you need to focus on organic connections and that is what's really going to be what builds what you go on to build. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily just you, it's the people who believe in you. Yeah. So yeah, eventually I, was, I just took a leap of faith and I was like, you know what, I can't do this lot anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm out. So, so. so would you say you, you switched over when the online coaching got more like popular or serious? Was that, what was like the, because the, it's, it's a pretty risky or big jump to switch from like a, like secure job to like something of like coaching, right? Which is, I would say at that it time, is, yeah. it wasn't that, that as big as it is now, right? It definitely was a gamble because at that time, like I did not necessarily have um, a clear indication of its support in the future. I yeah. don't know like how it would scale. Yeah. Uh, whether or not that was actually the finite scaling cap right there. It could have been. Um, but I did have this belief, and it was, it was strange. When I was training, I was, when I was strength training. I just knew that, it, although I'm just lifting weights, and although it's just numbers, it's actually getting me to where I need to go. And, and it's not just in the gym. It's not just like putting on some size, whatever. This will lay the foundation for building a life. It, it, it's like, powerlifting is interesting because it's, it's, the only reason you do it is because it's hard. Right? There's nothing beyond that. Like, it's something you, you prove to yourself that I did this difficult thing. 
that I didn't think I could do. Mm -hmm. How much further can I go? Mm -hmm. And if you apply that same mindset to literally anything you do in life, mm -hmm. you're going to be great at it. Trust mm -hmm. me. Like, because you have to be dogged. You have to be relentless. You have to be strategic. Um, and that kind of mentality is always rewarded. Mm. I don't, it doesn't matter what you do. It's, it's like a, uh, it's, it's the only precondition. Just to dial it back, when did you get started in training? Why did you start training? Like, was it in high school? Was it like when you were at uni? Yeah, so this was uh, probably when I was about 18, I think. Cool. Yeah. Um, I remember, because my, my mum lifts weights. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> and so does my, gra my grandfather did. So on my mum's side, there was a, a strong family history of lifting and pumping okay. iron. Okay. And uh, so she got me into it. But I remember, you know, I was, when I was younger, I was really a dickhead, to be honest. I probably still am. But, <laughs> and uh, I was at a party, and uh, I remember some guy, like, he was trying to start a fight with me or something, probably because I was... I sort of had a bit, you know, I had big blonde hair I and stuff. I've seen a picture of it, yeah. Yeah, like Goku, Super Saiyan type sort of yeah. <laughs> type deal. Anyway, uh, so got in a bit of a scuffle with him. Nothing much eventuated from that. And then I got kicked out of the party and I was sitting out in the car out, outside waiting for my friends to come and get in so we could go. And, uh, and then I got attacked through the window. And I didn't see it coming. And of course, there's no way you can fight back while you're sitting in a car. And... I got my jaw broken and my nose broken and I was knocked clean out. So I had pretty severe head trauma, to be honest. I think that for quite a few years that that actually genuinely, um, that, was, that was a problem. It created like psychological issues I had to work through. Interesting. Okay. Like uh, definitely like social anxiety. Anyway, so I thought, mm. all right, I'll fortify myself. Which okay. is like the natural inclination, right? Yes. Yeah. And then from there, it sort of translated to, well, I can build social capital with this. You know, if I build a physique, then people will want to, you know. Respect. Yeah, they'll want to, you know, come into my life. You know, they'll want to be my friend when I go out kind of thing. It does work like that. Mm. Um, it's a great connection maker. You know, mm. people like you, <laughs> wherever you go, like a guy, hey, bro, like how much you cut? Yeah. Whatever it is. Yeah. You open a conversation yeah. there, right? Yeah. And that's a great way to connect with people. So that was, that was my motivation from then on. Cool. Okay. So now fast forward again. So you're doing online coaching. You've gone all in with it. Um, I guess it started to become relatively successful for you to be able to have a living off it, right? Hmm. Uh, can you kind of explain what that was like and what transitioned you into your the supplement company you started with? Like, you're not you're not the are you you're not the CEO, but you're director. Well, the sole director. Okay. Yeah. Sole director and sole shareholder. Cool. You want to kind of tell us about that journey and like, I guess, um, what made you decide to even start that? Yeah, so I kind of pivoted out of online coaching to add a supplement dimension to the brand. Um, and I'd recommend most young guys think about this. Like you'll have stages. You can, you can build from nothing, which should encourage everyone. You can start from literally zero if you just have the right strategy going forward. What I recommend you do is you start with a service-based business where you can sell some expertise, um, some privileged information you've learned through application of your craft. Um, I don't know if you're like, you make amulets or something like that. There, there's, something, there's something you might know through being passionate about what you do and just applying yourself day in, day out that you can convert. And that's only gonna come with like years of applied effort, but you can then start with zero overheads and then you can just go straight into making some money. So for me, that was an information-based business, aka 
uh, online training programs, diets, all that kind of stuff. That has a relatively low scaling cap because you're still sort of limited by time. By time, yeah. So once you you learn how to stop um, selling time and transition, like that's when you access the next stage. So typically, you want to transition from like a, a service based business to a product based business. Mm -hmm. Um, which doesn't really require too much input from you personally. So you don't actually have to sell your time. It's something you can then scale like infinitely if you want to. Mm -hmm. um, but you should also keep in mind that that's when the problems are going to start. Like that's a hard bit. Can you um, explain what you mean by that? Well, let's, let's say early on you transition from, say, doing something like what I was doing. Yeah. Say like if you're a, like a girl, right, and you're offering your first business is like, uh, life coaching or uh, I know sort of someone who ran a business in uh, uh, navigating menstrual cycles so I thought that was quite innovative that's a good yeah. idea uh, then you decide to scale into a clothing brand the, the, the troubling the trouble you're going to face is like working out say how much stock you get for that first order you don't want to get so much stock that you can't shift it you're sitting on dead capital because yep. Yep. Um, that's when you'll fail yep. right so this is where you start to learn things like constraints theory, which is like, how can I minimize my overheads by sitting on the least required inventory to service demand relative to the profit flow coming in? Mm -hmm. So your goal, number one, is always like, how do I maximize net, net profit? Now, you can have a business that's growing really, really fast, uh, but the cost of servicing that growth is so great, you, you can actually go back. backwards and go bankrupt. Yeah. Right, because you have to do bigger reorders for, say, the clothing, whatever it might be, or um, you know, you you have to spend more on advertising, hire more staff. Mm. Um, suddenly, like things can get out of control very quickly, and typically, most businesses will fail um, in that first sort of two-year period where you're working that out. But then, once you work out like your baseline, then you're good. Mm. So, what was that process like for you? Was it? Um Arduous? Did you? Because were, were you were you running this by yourself at that point, or like how, yeah. did, how did that even start? Like, did you meet these other people and you just like decided to start it all together? Like, well, I mean, I've I've done different things like with different companies and other companies require other other teams of people, right? Hmm. That's about connecting the dots, largely. Um, how I got into it in the first place was that um, you know I'm a, a creative guy and I'm a curious guy. And so I was looking for tools that I could use to add to my arsenal to better myself mm, mm -hmm. um, in whatever capacity that might be. It might have been, you know, so one of them was like a nootropic. Mm -hmm. Like I, I know that I need to perform more cognitively. What can I do to eke out, you know, 95 to 100% of what I'm, I'm capable of generating in this present moment? Yep. Um, and then, yeah, it was just a, a case of working out whether or not people were interested in that kind of stuff. And then... Uh, if they weren't creating a market, mm. so increasing awareness, and then you know gradually setting the market. So this is something that will be tricky for most people. Is like how do you just generate like a bit of hype around whatever you're doing? Um, a lot of I see a lot of people like big followings. Like oh my god, like you're wasting a golden opportunity. Like you've got a hundred thousand followers and you haven't started a business. Like what are you doing? Mm. You know because you've got so many eyeballs on like whatever you're. Uh, presenting that you know if you converted even five percent of that to sales, they say like attention is yeah. like the new like. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, one hundred percent. It, and this is kind of like a, a perverse incentive, and it's like unfortunately creating a lot of issues in society. 
Um, you know, you've got this sort of like TikTokification of brains where everyone's just thinking about like how they can get more attention to, like every day. Mm. And it's sort of like a race to the bottom in some ways because what's you know, going to get the most attention is not necessarily what's going to be... The most valuable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's not going to be the, like the most useful information or... Um, it, like a lot of people, you know, obviously are going to debase their morals to get a bit more extra attention or whatever. But, yeah. What do you... Th- so just to, on that topic, what do you think of people who leverage like, like, like entertainment content or like, like stupid, like meme content and then change it to like business? Well, you've got to be careful with that because that's not an engaged audience. Like, mm. So they're yeah. there for the comedy. They're not there for your whey protein. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And also, if you're a performing clown, who the hell trusts a performing clown? Mm. Whereas if you're consistently posting scientific material, uh, you know, which you know, has merit standing on its own independent of you, um, you might not get as much attention. You might not get as much reach. But the people who are there for that content are there for that content. 100%. And it will create its own channels. If it's good information or it's good material, it'll find its way out there. People will start sharing it. Mm. And there's the organic network effect. It's like this sort of uh, Metcalf theory. The value of any network, like any company, is largely the, the size of its organic reach. So Meta's share price is sort of like directly mapped to its growth of its user base, at least in the early days, right? Yep. Um, and then, you know, it's the same thing with, with social media, you know, if you're on personal account, your capacity to enrich yourself is directly correlated to how far you can reach. It's not necessarily just your own channel, how far it can go, because other people might be reposting your stuff. They might not even, you know, the other people who that content gets to might not be following the original page. Yeah. Right. But they're still aware of it. Yeah. So you're creating these nodes around yourself yeah. and you're the center of the hub, mm. right? But then you're creating awareness that ripples out. Very interesting. All right, just to get back on track. So, Sorry. <laughs> so you started Eagle. I think that took off too because I literally like maybe like a year ago, I was hanging out with some mates and we're just talking about like supplements and like, like we, I didn't know they were taking these supplements. But then at some point we were like, oh, where'd you get that from? Eagle. I was like, oh, me too. And he's like, oh, me too. And it's like all these people that I know that are taking these things all take it from Eagle. This never ceases to amaze me. Wherever I go, I will find someone who is either using it or is who knows yeah. someone who does. Or And it's, it's kind of, I wouldn't say like scary, but it, it's a... Almost a somber realization because you kind of realize the extent of um, how far, like I have more active customers than I do followers. Mm, mm. And, you know, to put, to put it in context. So then you feel like there's this, this duty to do your absolute best mm. to service that level of what I feel like is a compliment to the brand. It's like mm. the fact that this many people care about it. Mm. We're going to go 110% to make sure it's absolute best it can be. It, it also just goes to show like you're actually hitting a need in the, in the marketplace. Yeah. You know? I, th- I mean, that's okay. This is where it really drill down on something valuable because if you're starting, if you, like don't try and chase money. It will run from you, right? Uh, the number one thing people need to focus on is like, well, how can I uh, create some value? Like where is there a need? Mm. And unfortunately, this world is now riddled with problems. 
and they are intractable problems. And you have a duty now to help to solve some of them. Mm. And I think there's a lot of value to be found in any which way you look at it from doing that. And there's an immense satisfaction you find in doing that too. Mm. Um, and I just, I, that's what I, the way I look at the world. It's like, I just look at flows of need and I try and find a way to service that. I don't think about, will this be profitable? I don't try and think about what's the margins on this and try and gain every percentage point. It's like, what will have the most tangible impact? It's very noble, very interesting. Yeah, I mean, even if your goal was just purely to make profit, like that's the way you should, yep. should, should think about it. It's yep. like, you don't, I don't have to be sanctimonious about it. Like mm -hmm. that's just realistically the way people should look at things. Cool, very interesting. Um, so on the topic of problems, so Eagle was doing really well and then, you know, like <laughs> literally I was like watching like, your, your life is literally like a movie. So I was just watching all of this via Instagram and I think around that period, you were also dating someone. Is this around that period of time or yeah, I don't so, track too much? You just, you just correct me. Yeah, no, no, I'll, I'll sort of lay the same. Like it did explode like uh, far quicker than I thought it would. And there was this sort of giddy feeling where it was just sort of like doubling week on week and I was just like, oh my God, okay. Um, and it became a bit daunting. But it was fun. You know, it's like that, you know, it, it's what you dream of, right? It's like finally things are clicking and working. Um, and yeah, I had, you know, a great time and life was improving. Like I, I bought my first house and uh, I was out in the eastern suburbs living a good life and uh, I was very comfortable. And... Unfortunately, I think this is something I've got to sort of state clearly for young guys out there. Probably the, the greatest risk you face in life is who you decide to share your bed with. Mm. I don't mean to say that in the sense that you should treat women like the enemy, definitely not, because I think that you know, they are integral um, to your enjoyment of life. I just and I, I just, just to round that out, it's yeah. just to say that uh, you just need to be very careful. Just like vet people, make sure that they're the right person for you. And because you're going to learn from my example that it can go horribly wrong. So <laughs> before we dive into that, and because I agree with you, it's, I was talking to a mate recently. It's like, this is the only decision where you, you don't, I guess you can have a divorce, but you literally, this is it, you know, if you don't like your job, you can switch jobs. And if you don't like your house, you can change the area, the, the place you live. But like the person you marry, it's pretty much, this is it. Yeah. Well, divorce in itself is a problem. And if, if, like, I mean, I'm coming from a legal background, I understand uh, the jurisprudential thought behind it, right? Like, why they implement certain laws. What's the intended socio um, effect on society? And introducing, like, no fault divorce, um, the family law court system being, I would say, prejudicial against men, you just need to be extremely careful. Mm. Um, you know, trusts aren't going to protect you in the way you think they will. Um, and there's a way to sort of pierce and find assets that you probably wouldn't expect. Mm. So I'm not saying that, you know, you should live life as if you guarantee that your marriage is going to end. You should definitely try and make it work. Yeah. But if the case is, as it is statistically, that 80% of divorces are initiated by the wife, you just need to be conscious of that. Mm -hmm when making a, a very profound decision. And I think like um, raising a family is, is what we're here for. I agree. So uh, like I, you know, even on the way here, 
Uh, two little kids were like about to run across the road and I had this like dad instinct. I'm like, ah, shit. Like they didn't look full crossing. Like <laughs> got to slow down, make sure that they, you know, don't get hit or whatever. You know, and then they turn around and saw that I stopped and they're waving like, you know, and I was mm. just like, I just had this moment where I was like, yeah, I wouldn't mind having some little ones one day yeah. <laughs> to, to teach the ways of the world. But mm. uh, yeah, I mean, ultimately that's our purpose here on, on earth is to perpetuate the species to ensure the continuation of the gene. Good ones, um, at least. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, at a base biological imperative level, that's how we're all programmed. Mm-hmm. I think we just need to be um, smart about how we do it. Which I agree to. Um, but yeah, just to dial back to this relationship, you want to kind of talk about as much as you'd like to um, and what that experience was like because that led to like a cascade of other events. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I was a, a poor judge character and you learn... I guess, with experience. And I guess when you're not young, you're not really sort of aware of these types of things. You're also not really aware of um, the more sinister aspects of uh, people's mm. capacity. Um, and so, you know, I, I met someone, it was fun. Uh, she's very chaotic. And I, at, you know, at first I thought that was interesting Inter- at least. Fun, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was like sort of like a, a live wire, right? Unfortunately, that quickly degenerated and uh, I had myself locked in with someone that I could not get away from uh, and I, I quickly realized that it was an extremely toxic situation and I needed to get out, but there was just like this, and guys, they won't want to talk about this and I'm sure there are a lot of guys out there, but they can get locked in abusive relationships. Uh, in the sense, it's, it's different, it's not necessarily violent, although she was violent towards me um, on more than one occasion. Uh, the police report and I was actually listed as the victim of domestic violence, if you can believe that. And uh, yeah, so it often comes in other forms like economic violence. Um, so there's like, you know, they'll try and leverage money out of you, whatever, use force to try and achieve it. Anyway, I quickly realized, that, and actually, what my mum did too, that she had to go and I had to find a way to get her out of my life basically and in that severance she kind of decided that she was going to A make sure that she got some money out of it um, but B decided to try and destroy my life as a consequence of perhaps what I think uh, holding a mirror to some deep insecurities and you've got to be extremely careful of that with some people because you'll be the target of uh, a collective pain body that will come at you with a ferocity you would never expect. And it will blindside you with the force of like a charging elephant. Just to, on reflection, <coughs> do you, if just for anyone who's like, just so they don't make the same, I guess, error as yourself, do you think looking back that there were any like red flags look I, I think honestly like I, I might have contributed to the problem too like I've since checked my behaviour and sort of evaluated my role in uh, A attracting people like you know that will be potentially troublesome mm. you know putting out the wrong kind of energy you know if you project chaotic energy that's what will come back mm. Um, mm. but then B also just sort of being like um, the right kind of partner but also maintaining boundaries, that's the last one, see. So, yep. like, making sure that you very clearly state what is acceptable, what is not, and then holding frame. Yes, yes. 
and then it's just non-negotiable. Like it's obviously like you talk things through, but you do not break your frame. Yeah, you've got to be that anchor of certainty. Because if you start letting that go, then they'll start digging more and pushing. Yeah, and unfortunately, some people are sadistic and they're psychopathic, and they'll try and start using that to try and break you mentally. And this all sounds very strange because this is particularly isolated this one person who I thought was effectively became like this demon. So what happened was in a, a separation, like I sort of anticipated all this potentially becoming a problem in the first place. So I made sure she never lived with me um, because if someone lives with you for more than six months, you've got a de facto situation. Oh, interesting. They have a claim to half your shit. Okay, I didn't know that. So be very careful of that. So I actually rented her a separate apartment. So that, you know, we're separated and there's no claim. Anyway, so she decided to try and get money out anyway. And, you know, the Amber Heard situation where she brought uh, frivolous claims against Johnny who were pr- proven to be defamatory, whatever, yeah. you know, the whole thing. Um, she was going to engineer a similar kind of thing. Unfortunately, like, um, the court system does not look favorably on men. Mm. So there's, I mean, yeah, fairly so. Like, there should be, a, like, a believable women um, type mentality. But then some people also know they can leverage that for personal advantage and, and they can heard, use it as a weapon. Yeah. So, you know, anything that can be used as a shield can be used as a sword. Mm. That's what you mm. think about in a legal context. Mm. Uh, and beyond that too. So, so she was threatening to create allegations that would, you know, destroy me, right? That was her whole thing. That's, and that's she wanted scary. to get paid to not create any issues. Yeah. But she was like creating chaos in my life, like contacting my landlord for my work premises, like just, um, you know, going through all my friend lists and um, terrorizing them, contacting my family, threatening my family. Uh, for months, I was getting threatened, basically. Of course, you're trying to run a business, you're under a, a lot of stress, and it's just a lot. Yeah. Like, it's just, you know, it's hard enough, as most people know, just getting by and making success things, but... If you're trying to like acti- actively defend everything you're building at the same time, it's really difficult. And so she enlisted this lawyer that uh, effectively drafted up this instrument of blackmail. And he knew what he was doing was illegal. It was, it was dodgy. And uh, the whole thing, I was just like, all right, what, what the hell's going on here? Like, this is just this is the craziest situation. Anyway, at the same time, this is, this is where it gets really... Interesting. There was a con man who was sent into my network by both her lawyer and her, um, who then went around defrauding not only me, but all my friends, my business network. So he got about, I think, $260,000 out of them and uh, about... Your, your network. Yeah. $260,000 from your network. Yeah, so he was basically posing as an investor, wow. um, offering... Uh, more or less like a connection to capital for building certain businesses. And the way that he approached me was in that capacity through, through referral, like a, a friend actually referred him in. So unfortunately, like I um, didn't vet him as thoroughly as I should have myself. And I went off my friend's word because he'd been in business longer than myself. And I thought things would be fine. Things were not fine. So he was posing as my legal counsel. And about halfway through, I kind of realized that uh, this guy who's supposedly my legal counsel is seemingly acting in cahoots with the other side. And I was getting to the bottom of all this. So I go to the police. I'm like, this has got way out of hand. And, you know, I laid this whole thing out. I'm like, look, 
you know, these people are, are coming after me, they're threatening me, they're threatening my family. Um, they're trying to get money out of me and then, you know, in return for not destroying my life, like, is there something you can do about this? And so they looked into it and they were like, yeah, no, we don't really sort of understand fraud. And I was just like, great. So like the one time you actually need the state to actually do something, like it can't. <laughs> you know, like what do you, what do you pay taxes for, right? Um, so that was useless, right? So I got a fan for myself. And I was getting pissed off. And in the end, I decided to pay whatever to make them go away because I was just like, I just needed to focus on business, focus on building and, and move on with life. Mind you, this is like a six-figure sum. It's not a, a small amount, a trivial amount of money. Mm -hmm. like it might be you know, for some people. But anyway, so at the time, it was quite a lot. And uh, so I was doing my own investigations and I worked out the connections between these people. After you <laughs> paid them off, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so they somehow worked out that I knew what they were doing, which was running a white collar crime ring, which is a, like a, a fraud network. Yeah. Right? It's racketeering. Oh, so, so you think they, they've been doing that previously? Well, not only do I think that, they've been prosecuted successfully for that, and one of them is in custody. So, oh, since, since then? Mm-hmm. Ah. So there was a massive task force set up to, to take this down, because it's not just like one of them. It was like... I think it was like 40 odd people in this whole extended network. There's a lot of people. Jeez. And this one individual that handed himself in who was posing as the investor, the con man who came into my network. The legal, the legal counsel. Who was acting as my lawyer who yeah. just double crossed me. Had, uh, he admitted to ripping $5 million out of people uh, through like a sort of glorified Ponzi scheme. Why? I think he's honestly a psychopath, like a clinical psychopath. He's this obese piece of like, actually I shouldn't swear. <laughs> won't let my emotions get the better of me, but he's a terrible human. I think there are some people on this earth who are just genuine stains on humanity. Then why would he hand himself in there? Fear, because he was convinced he was going to get killed by his former enforcer, um, who's known in underground circles apparently. And so out of fear, he handed himself in because he thought he'd be safe from jail. Wow, <laughs> crazy. Okay, so. Um, so just to kind of fast forward a bit. So that all happened. Um, and I guess how did that all... I'm still on the end of the story. Yeah, go on. Yeah, guess how, how did that wrap up, I guess? Well, then and the next stage of this... Okay, this is where it started to get interesting. So they figured out that I, I knew what was going on. I think they panicked. And so the lawyer sent me this really curious email, um, which was uh, effectively threatening me with Raptor Squad uh, to shut up, you know, to stop pursuing my lines of inquiry. What's Raptor Squad? So if you Google it, you know, you'll see men in black hockey masks with assault rifles and, you know, nasty sort of paramilitary kind of unit. Like, to be fair, they do their job breaking up, like, proper, you know, organized crime networks. Right. And here's just me, like, just running a business. Like, yeah. I'm like, okay, cool. So I, I just immediately thought, this is stupid. And I fired back to him, I called his bluff. I'm like, well, I'm not doing anything wrong, so go be my guest, like... This is ridiculous. And then I took that to the police. Mm. I said, look, like you're being used as a private gang against me. Mm. And again, nothing. And so I thought, right, I'm just going to go and have a conversation with this guy. I've had enough. I need to just talk this out, clear the air. And basically make it known that I'm just not going to be sat there and intimidated and bullied and treated like a little kid. So he happened to live pretty close to me in the eastern suburbs. He was like, 
effectively two streets away. So at that time I had a, a driver. I lost my license. Um, the perils of having a fast car. And at that time I was kind of paranoid and this guy was sort of doubling as my bodyguard as well. So he's a, he's a good man. He's someone who's fiercely loyal. And uh, yeah, so we were driving home and basically we just pulled in, um, knocked on his front door. He let us in. Uh, we had a conversation in the living room, uh, which to be fair became an argument, but that was about all it was. No one got hurt, nothing like that. And then we left. The next day, I get contacted by the police. I'm like, oh, here we go, right, okay. Maybe the neighbors heard something, whatever. And they're like, hey, we want you to come in and uh, talk with us. So I was like, all right, okay, go in. And to my horror of being hit with all these charges that did not reflect what happened whatsoever. And I was just looking at it like, what the hell? And I had no understanding that this is how uh, the process works in Australia with the DPP. Effectively, it's a game. It doesn't actually reflect the, the situation at hand. What they'll do is they'll hit an individual with charges that are way beyond whatever happened in the full knowledge that they will never get those charges to stick. But I'll use the force of you being in remand to eventually cave and plead guilty to something lesser so you can just sort of get a, a reduced sentence. And that still might be greater than whatever you did. So like a scare tactic. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely sort of like a, it's just a, a psychological pressure tactic. Interesting, yeah. And so they hit me with ridiculous charges. It was like um, especially aggravated break and enter. Um, they tried to shoehorn firearms charges into that. Um, they tried to get a ballistics report in, but even ballistics department was like, there's no firearm. Like, there's no, nothing that's going to be shooting at anyone. Mm -hmm. Like, we don't have anything here. Still, that was the charge. And what happened was that you go to the first bail hearing and that's just what you get charged on, right? That's what the judge sees. Looks terrible. And I got bail refused. And so what I thought was just going to be, you know, like a little chat at the police station, don't do it again, don't be mean, go on your way. After all the, all, everything I'd done with cooperation, right? I thought, you know, I've done everything I can through every proper channel. The only way I can sort this out is just going man to man to be like, look, this is bullshit. Like, this, is, this can't go on, right? <laughs> like, after months of being threatened, yeah. you know, with everything under the sun and paying the fucking money as well, mind yeah. you, you know, that's the least you, could, you would expect to do, right? And so, um, yeah, bail refused, got sent off to prison. And this is what people don't understand. You can get, you get imprisoned and go to the worst part of the prison, which is maximum security, uh, on remand, without ever being, like there's no proven charge. You have, you're guilty before being proven innocent. And so this is like a horrifying realization for me because I never worked in criminal law. I worked in property law. I didn't realize this. And so, I got thrust straight into, uh, first of all, the most violent uh, end of the, the prison system in the whole country. Which so where, is, where did you go? Well, first of all, you go to transit jail, which is Parkland. And that is insane because everyone's fresh off the street. And mind you, these people have like literally just killed people or you know, insane crimes. Like someone got stabbed to death in my wing, you know, or stabbed in the neck dead. Mm. Um, it was just, it's, you can't imagine what it's like. It's the, the culture shock 
It's another. It's like landing on another planet. I was gonna say, what was the time span between you getting like refused bail and you going into like possibly like six hours? <laughs> what? Yeah. So all this is happening like lightning fast. I didn't have proper res- representation. Nothing. Um, and what the worst part was that I was hit with all these charges, but even with those charges, they weren't a show cause of, uh, offense. So technically, I should have been able to get bail. So I never should have gone inside. So I spent seven months in hell when I should never have been there because of a procedural issue. And this like just goes to show like how one pen stroke can define an entire human's future. Like that whole experience could have very easily killed me. Yeah. Because it's it's not like a safe environment. It's not like you know you walk around the street here. There might be like a dodgy group over there, but like if you're street smart, you cross the street and go the other way. You're literally locked in close proximity with people who like kill multiple people. You say one wrong thing, you are fucked. You know, you've got to be so careful. This is a dangerous environment and uh, you're around very serious people, you know? So, um, but yeah, this is, this is a real problem. I think that, yeah, sure, you need law and order. I think that's important. I think at least we have that in this country. But I think we're sort of overcorrected. Wow. Because there's an industry there. That's a whole nother conversation. Uh, so, so it was seven months in, was it just Park Lee? No, so I was transitioned out of there and I went to Long Bay. So, although Park Lee might be the most chaotic and violent, Long Bay is probably the worst in terms of deprivation. It's as bleak and as hellish as you can imagine. Where's Long um, Bay, by the way? I think it's down in Malabar. Sort of oh, okay. Down south. Okay. okay. It's, it's by the sea. Yeah. I know that, roughly at least. But it was built in the 1800s. So you can imagine that they weren't sort of so minded with, you know, being accommodating. And uh, they deliberately designed it on a pain principle, which is a strange thing to imagine, but the architecture is meant to hurt you. Like the windows are so high, you can't see out of them. And the window, like mind you, the windows for the cell has no glass. It's open to the elements. And it's as spartan as you can imagine. You're never on your own. You're always sharing this tiny space with other people. And it's incredibly uncomfortable, and that's actually like what drives me insane. Is it's no personal space. So, it's I think people get this like illusion that uh, from TV shows that being inside is like somehow like a, a cushy thing. I don't know, or it's like they, it's definitely a sanitized view of it they get. The I, reality is so much worse. I think most people would never want to go to jail anyway. No, you definitely don't. And I, I think like this is so strange to people because it's like. I, I'm not that kind of person. Like, I don't hang around with criminals. I don't associate with, you know, that kind of behavior. And I'm quite a disciplined person. And I, I'm someone who I would consider to be, well, at least try to be a good person. Mm. That's the last place to turn up. Even in there, they're like, what are you doing here? Like, you shouldn't be here. Did, like, you, have yeah, people, no. did you have people who knew you? Just out of, that'd be interesting. <sighs> I think one guy. Yeah. Uh, but not really, no, because it's just different worlds. Right? Yeah, 100%, 100%. So, you know, but that's the other thing. Like a lot of them, they all knew each other, so they had friends everywhere. Uh, you're going into a hostile environment. You're just like this complete unknown entity, and everyone's like, "Who's that?" Yeah. So it's up to you to go and make friends, and make sure everything's cool, and play politics and whatever. So, but this is what I consider a, a spiritual winter. I think that uh, in society, men do not have initiations into adulthood. I think I definitely transition from being a boy to a man in that kind of environment and I don't think that it's something that anyone needs to go through or should go through um, but I think there's a, a rite of passage that you can derive some value from if you look at any religious text there's like a period you know 40 days in the desert 
of insane privation. And often at the core of that is with like starvation as well. So there's deprivation at the core of every um, spiritual awakening, right? Yeah. There's some, something soulful is created through suffering. Yes. And so that's why I try and look at it. Like I try and look at it positively. I'm like, now I am such a strong person, so strong-minded um, because I've been through the absolute worst of life. Mm-hmm. And, and knowing that, you know, I still persevered no matter what. Um, you know, I, I feel like the world is your oyster at that point. You're free. Mm. And I think a lot of people are not free because they fear things. Uh, fear is what controls you. You know, it's like you haven't started that business because you're scared. Mm-hmm. What are you scared of? Failure? It's like, yeah, we all fail. It's like, so what's stopping you? And it's really not much. I think when you drill down to everything, it's like nearly everything is fear-based. And you look at what, what, trying to, what kind of uh, limbic response they're trying to amplify in humans right now, it's fear. Mm-hmm. And it's like whatever side of the spectrum you're on, it's like they're both trying to dr- drive fear. Even though it's sort of conspiracy crowd, like they're, they're trying to amplify fear as well. You know, because they, that sells ebooks or whatever, or it gets them notoriety in the community. It's like there's no one who's really servicing what people really need, which is to be placated. Uh, to be comforted that, you know, if we all just band together, you know, get our shit together and focus on what we need to be doing, be kind to one another, we can build a better world together. Instead, you know, fear just, through fear. fear just sells harder. It does, unfortunately. Um, okay, so you want to kind of explain how you got out of prison and then I guess that kind of fast forwards to like kind of now-ish and where you're... So that was a balance off, right? So this is this is hilarious. So my first barrister that I got um, to conduct my bail application for the Supreme Court was bought off by this alleged victim in my situation because he was worried because I, I could end his career, you know, because I've exposed genuine criminal behavior and I have direct evidence. The guy that you went into the living room of? The what, sorry? The guy that you went into the living room of? Wait. Yeah, so the lawyer. Yeah. yeah. So he bought off my first barrister pay for him to retain him, which is not cheap, mind you. That's like yeah. 10 plus grand a day. Mm. You don't do that if you're not worried. Yeah, yeah. Right? So the idea was that he'd have access to whatever I shared with him. Now, I'm not an idiot now, so I, didn't share, I don't share everything with anyone. Right? So I was conscious. I was like, even at that point, I was like, I need to be wary of what I'm saying, even to my legal counsel. So at that point, nothing lost. So he's just lost more money trying to pay for this guy. No worries, get a new counsel, whatever. Um, I ended up getting probably the best representation you can get uh, in Australia. Um, and, you know, that cost a pretty penny. That was about fifteen to $20,000 a day for my full legal team. Um, but got the job done, got out, and then, then I could actually begin um, formulating my defense and then it takes some time after that until you finally clear your name. In the end of it, once it all came down to it, like the only thing that I actually got charged with is intimidation. And it's like a slap on the wrist and on your way kind of thing. Mm. Like, and that's what pissed me off the most was that going through all of this shit for so little was, <laughs> it's so hard to take because people think, oh yeah, seven months, it's all right. But seven mm-hmm. months when you're living a good life and if you're just in your apartment, it'll go fast like this. Yeah. If you are in pain, you know when you've got a migraine? And yeah, you're like, time just like, time dilates. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, minutes yeah. feel like hours yeah I honestly felt like I was in there for seven years mm. it's like a time warp mm-hmm. and uh, yeah so my experience in seven months like I'm not trying to look for me but you know anyone who's been a long bay maximum security will tell you that it's not a fun place to be mm. I can tell you and I'm lucky that I had some surprisingly good people around me 
Um, you know, I, I would consider them men of character. Sure, they might have done technically some bad things, but a lot of them were in situations that were sort of beyond their control. Mm. But it, they were still honorable people. Mm. Mm -hmm. And this is one thing I want to make this point, was that um, they were really putting pressure on me to throw the other party under the bus. The, 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 the court? The authorities, yeah. And I just wouldn't. I wouldn't say anything about someone who was showing me loyalty. And I think that's why they doubled down on me, I think, to be honest, and why they wanted to really try and break me. Uh, was that sort of act of defiance because most people just turn and rat on who they want information on. That's their end game. And so I'm not willing to do that. Like I'm, I'm a man of principle and I'm like, well, I'll own my actions. I'll take accountability for it. And this is a situation I find myself in. And I didn't say a word. And most people probably would have in that situation. We got swung out. We've been fine. Um, but I remember when I was inside, and this is something I'll never forget. Um, there was one guy who was in there who was charged with murder, right? And it was, someone got killed basically and there was two other people in that room. One of them did it, we still don't know who. Um, but the guy that I knew um, put his hand up for it. And this was like a bombshell in the court proceedings. He basically said, look, I'm going to take the rap for it. In my honest opinion, uh, and the rest of us, we, we knew that he didn't do it. And... It was when he came back and heard the news, it was just this like solemn sort of like, real, like he felt it. Like there were 200 people that heard that and were just like, they hung their head. Because I knew that that guy's life's over. You know, that's such a heavy thing to do to sacrifice your entire life for your friend. And I thought like, that's such an, like in such a horrible circumstance, obviously it's not something to glorify or anything like that, but the right choice was made. An honor wow. honorable choice in a horrible situation. And I still, I remember things like that because like th there's humanity in some of the, these awful situations. And again, like, you know, things like murder are not things you should glorify. Like it's such a horrible thing because it's not just one person's life that's over, it's two. You know, if someone has killed someone else, then you've ended your own life. Yeah. And not just that, like the, the families around either, both parties, you know, like it's, um, it's such a destructive thing and a horrible thing for, for everyone. Um, concern and for society in general, really, but um, to salute True Tower. Damn. I've got a lot of heavy stories, and yeah. it's, this is why I don't talk about them because it's a lot. Yeah. And I can go a lot further. I mean, there are some other truly terrible things that I could recount that, you know, would give anyone else PTSD. And I don't talk about these things publicly because it's like, you don't want to be like radioactive, right? You don't need known for that guy with the problems. I'm not the guy with the problems. Like, I'm the guy who's living a good life now. And moved on. You know, I don't want to be known for that. Yeah. Like, this is something that happened in the past. Mm -hmm. It's not, a, not your identity. And I think this is actually, if I can make this point to people out there, there's a lot of people out there, and a lot of you have been through a lot of shit in life, but it's very important you don't make that your identity. Because you'll start living that out every day, and you'll need to remain authentic to yourself, so you'll keep reliving that trauma. So if it's your identity, you keep reliving that moment. Like, this happened to me. This is who I am kind of thing. And reliving that moment actually programs your brain um, to the same extent that going through the experience in the first place did. So you're trapped in this trauma vortex and you can't get out. It's firing that pathway. Yeah, so this is where you've got to be really active in self-conditioning to break that cycle. Mm. And I've worked through um, PTSD with quite a few people um, in other capacities. Some interesting projects that I used to do with the ADR. And uh, that was a really valuable exercise, and I made some great friendships, and I learned a lot. And I think now I probably empathize more with what they're going through because 
understanding at least in the abstract what someone would experience in a war zone and then coming back to reality oh, this which is good life. we have a good life here let's be real like, yeah. like it's prosperity in a relative sense it's peaceful it's good life whatever you need you, you'll be able to get it if you work hard um, but it's it's very different and it's mm. very difficult to relate to people after that so mm. a lot of people are so, so I guess how did you transition back Diz how did you transition back to real life and I guess we can start talking about Helios which is like fast forward to now now yeah so I mean healing was a an active process I think it should be for anyone really I think that um, a lot of people are probably unaware of things that are guiding their actions now that they should probably address and so I took a lot of time to myself uh, I made sure that I surrounded myself with people that in my you know like I would say in a woo woo estimation that brought light into this world there are a lot of people out there that are just good right they're, they're, everything comes from like a, a noble place or they're just you know, kind people. You want to make sure that they're in your corner. And um, they're going to be helping you um, look up and remember that there's good in humanity and it's not just dark. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that um, that definitely helped. But I, I took in a very active role to be hyper-disciplined when I came out. You know, I was like on my training straight away. Cardio, lifting weights. Um, you know, I was rebuilding my business. Like that, luckily that picked up very quickly again. So Eagle, yeah? yeah? Yeah. So that was laying the groundwork for everything else. And, you know, that was touch and go. That was, that was kind of scary. I didn't know. I had to rebuild my entire factory somewhere else and do all kinds of, like the whole thing was very intense, right? Um, starting again from scratch was difficult, but thankfully we've got such a loyal customer base that, you know, they're just straight back in. Like, mm -hmm. Very supportive, very, always helpful. Um, but, I started sort of, I guess, I wouldn't say withdrawing, but um, like I find now that society can be quite a toxic place. So uh, I was out hiking a lot. I was out in nature and quite a bit. And I was like, you know what? I just want to be somewhere naturally beautiful and just be away from all of this. Just leave it all behind. Hop on a plane and just... Right? So it's like, in the, in the middle of lockdown, I was like, can you buy islands? It turns out you can. <laughs> yeah. So I remember so, seeing this on Instagram, and it was like, I thought it was like almost like a joke, but at the same time, it was, it was a like, joke. Yeah. At the same time, it's like of all people, I I would have thought you could have done something like that. It started as so, a joke, and then I, I started looking around, and I was like, hang on a sec, like that could be a really good thing to do. Like it could be really fun. Like it would be an interesting experiment. So. Uh, I found this place. It's super remote. It's probably like the most remote place on earth, basically. Is it close to... How far is it from Australia? Do mind it's about a four-hour flight. Okay. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, super remote, but it's incredibly lush. Like, it's like farmland out there. Um, but it's also a tropical island. Like, it's everything we'd want. And when I went there, it was... Um, it's hard to explain. It, it was like, if you were to imagine what heaven would look, would look like... Mm. It'd be hard to imagine things would be that, that different. Mm. There's everything you'd need there. And it was a different feeling. It was like all of the stresses of city life, um, all the, the white noise kind of, um, there's a lot that actually impedes your function in everyday life, living in a city, which you wouldn't realize until you get out, was just washed away. And I, I felt great. I felt really healthy. I even put on muscle and lost fat, even though I wasn't taking any supplements. Mm. And I thought, this is amazing. It's just like, you know, Farm to plate food, you know, uh, rainwater, 
collected you know directly from the sky no centralized water supply um and no 5g no internet like it was just sort of um read books yeah you know, pass the time uh or build something or go and explore you know go hiking that kind of stuff we had a gym there too which was interesting wow okay so because okay because i was picturing like like a freaking like deserted island so there was actually like stuff there yeah so the, where i bought property like is on the main island but also it has its own little islands off it so someone was like oh well, you didn't buy an island you just bought land on an island it's like all right well if we're being technical there's multiple right but <laughs> the point is that um you've got arable farmland so if you needed you can put cows down there you know you can raise chickens and you know, you could even collect um, water, even just sea spray that you used like a sheet, you know, basically put out. Like it, they use big screens, right, to collect water. Exactly. And it, yeah. it basically isolates the salt so you can get the clean drinking water. Lots of things you can do. It can be self-sufficient very easily out there, um, get solar energy. Everyone's completely self-sufficient. So there's already uh, inhabitants? There are other people there, yeah. Oh. So you can fly there to an airport. And so then you get to my little neck of the woods and... Um, which is on the, apparently, I didn't realize this, the, the people who originally discovered the island, that's where they lived. I was like, oh, that's cool. So it's called Blackthorn Point. I was like, oh, I like that. <laughs> okay. How much, how much like land do you, are you, did you buy? It's about 10 acres, yeah. So cool. I don't really know what that means, 10 acres. How many football fields is that? Two, I don't know. It's, I can't really think in football fields, maybe at least two. Okay. I want to say. Um, Okay, cool. But yeah, I just think I might be like overly paranoid, but um, I've seen trends of history, right? And I know what they want to usher in and I know how they're going to get it. What do you mean? And so the way I read the world is like, I know what's going to happen ahead of time. And that's how you get ahead. And if there is any secret source to a lot of what people do to um, appear lucky, is that they understand where things are going and they position themselves themselves ahead of time. You build your own luck. Right. So you're talking about in terms of you creating, like building, buying this space in the island is almost like a prevention, or not prevention. Think about this, right? So what's going to be valuable in the future? Um, I think we're now seeing the the crash of the financialized state, right? We've basically um, created so much hot air in our system that the bubbles finally popped, right? And all the, you know, the major stocks that are, you know, in companies that were always running at a loss, but, you know, they were kept alive by um, cheap debt and, uh, you know, share buybacks and things like that. All of that's dying and things that are intrinsically valuable are becoming the real assets you want to be in. Mm -hmm. So the smart money is in resources and they're in uh, arable farmland. And I'm going to tell you that. Now, you can think of farmland like gold with yield, depending on where you are. The asset itself will go up in value, particularly when you know, there's restriction on farmers and the production of food and food processing plants. Um, but again, like you've got, you can put livestock on there, you can sell them. Um, so you're guaranteed not only an appreciation on the asset, but also an income from the asset itself. So this is just, I mean, it's not like the best vehicle for making money, right? But um, in, an, in a market where everything is crashing, 
I think food's pretty damn. I important. think it's yeah, it's gonna be something that will always hold value. So I think like you you, you structure a portfolio by like um, allocation of risk. So I've got money in crypto and stuff. Like, sure, that's a safe bet. You know, that's something that you know will always be valuable, always be necessary. So, um, I know it's not like a a sexy answer for guys who want to make a bit of money, like. But there are long-term defensive strategies you should be adopting right now. Mm. Mine might be like a little bit different, but uh, you might be getting gold or something like that. Like, Hopefully someone got some ideas from getting an island, but let's transition to Helios, which is what you're currently working on. And um, you, you want to kind of explain to the viewers what that is? Yeah, sure. So uh, I decided to start an anti-aging company. Um, and it's not necessarily just addressing the, the superficial symptoms of aging, like, you know, wrinkles with Botox, whatever like that. Although we could add that dimension later. The idea is to address the, the root cause of aging. Like, why do we get wrinkly and gray and why does this decay? And it's, um, it's interesting work. I, I'm sure a lot of people have come across David Sinclair, who's that Harvard yep. professor who... I went on Joe Rogan and talked about NMN and resveratrol and other products like that. Yep. He is a pioneer. He's a, a very, uh, he's a brilliant man. Uh, and I think it's really good that you had someone who came along and just completely disrupted healthcare and was like, we need to start addressing root causes. Why, why is this happening? And for whatever reason, like everyone just thought getting old was just something that we all, all did. And there was nothing you could do about that. But I always thought about it like you can create a chemical intervention for anything, right, um, feasibly, why wouldn't you try to um, delay the process? And you very much can. Um, so when you think about what aging really is, it's like you've got a, a blueprint for your body, which is your DNA, DNA. base code. Yep. Yep. So over time, there's like information loss. You'll, you'll lose bits of it here and there, and your body keeps making a copy of itself. Like every seven years, you regenerate every cell in your body. Mm. So every seven, year, seven years, you're technically an entirely different person but not necessarily getting better. You're getting worse because you're subject to the thermodynamic laws of entropy, like everything in the universe, really. Um, so there's a way to um, stem the decay and focus on cellular health. So that's a number of mechanisms that dovetail into slowing or preventing the loss of information in DNA-based code. So DNA repair is kind of at the core of it. Yeah. Um, but there are a lot of satellite processes around that like loss of proteostasis telomeric shortening yeah that's, that's the list goes on yeah. yeah it's super complicated um and i do my best to lay it out in a technical fashion um it's probably pitched at a level that's like unnecessarily um uh detailed for, for most people but if you want to look at it it's there and i i'd recommend it um but what we're doing right now is an early foray into uh, three proven supplements that are quite common in the anti-aging space, but we're doing it in a different way. Um, so most are produced as capsules. So we're, we're the first, I know for a fact, at least in Australia, if not the world, to be doing it in a liposomal formula. What does that mean? Because I know <coughs> I know most, like where I used to hear, where I've heard this before is like the, the Tom Cruises and like the Jennifer Aniston's, they all get these IV drips like twice a year and that's how they stay like so young. Yeah, so one thing that the elites use is uh, NAD+, uh, in the IV drips, that is. Um, but 
you can't just um, take an OD class as a, as a supplement. It's something you need to take a, a precursor of it, right? So you need to take something like uh, nicotinamide riboside or NMN, which in your system will induce endogenous production of NAD+. For those who don't know, NAD+, is something that um, declines with age, and it's sort of closely correlated with the loss of genetic information. So as NAD+, levels drop, everything falls apart kind of thing. It's not to say it's the only thing that regulates aging, but it is an important... Component. Uh, yeah, subcomponent. So people were doing things like NMN for like 12 months, and it's quite interesting. And they had grey hair, and they were starting to return their hair back to their original colour mm. after 12 months. Mm. So it, I find for myself, like, when I improve cellular health, I've done this with quite a few different compounds, I find I'm just firing all cylinders. My cognitive function is great, my energy levels are great, my focus is great, um, my force output in the gym is fantastic. Um, I don't have that brain fog. I'm not, like, you know, lethargic. Like, I'm always motivated, I'm always switched on. When you don't feel like that, you're just like a zombie. Mm. You know, there are things you, you should be doing to fix that because you shouldn't be like that. It's not the default state of humanity. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't feel like you want to sit on the couch all day and just like watch Netflix. Yes. It's not normal. It's not what our ancestors did. Yeah, exactly. So there are things you can do. I'm not saying that like there's a chemical cure for everything. Like what I, what I realized through all this, through Helios, is that there are multiple pathways that every bit is important. Mm. So I started to realize you can actually induce chemical change in the body with electromagnetic manipulation. So using uh, like um, an electric current passing through a magnetic field to induce change at a mitochondrial level. Is that the biofeedback thing you've talked about? This is, yeah, this is really fascinating stuff. I did it as like a sort of one-off trial just to sort of see how it would go. And I was just amazed by the results. My energy levels were just like nuclear. Mm. And I was skeptical at first because I'd read certain things like it could target out um, injured tissue and fix only that and leave everything else fine. Like it wouldn't do anything to the rest of your body. So when I did my first test, I was, I, I didn't tell the technician. I was just like, all right, well, you know, zap me up, just, I'm ready to go. And he did my left shoulder and didn't feel anything. And I did my right shoulder and I didn't tell them, but like I'd had a, an niggle, you know, when you're benching all the time, mm -hmm. you get like sore shoulder, a bit of bursitis, where it might be, lit up. And I was like, wow, like it seemingly went straight to the side of the, the injury and started doing its magic. And the next day it felt fine, no pain. No inflammation, free movement. I was just like, what is this? This is like magic. Same with my back. That's originally why I went there because I, I have a lot of back issues. I, I, yeah. So even before I started powerlifting, triple herniation, paralyzed my right leg. Like I couldn't walk. And so, you know, I, <laughs> I tweaked at picking on something at work. I was like, this is bullshit. So I had to go and, you know, get some therapy. I thought I'd try this. And I'd read that it uh, improved discogenic fusion within the spinal, uh, like the, the spine, um, I think by around 85%. Um, oh, sorry, no, it was, uh, you had two groups, right? There was, uh, the group left to just repair the back just with like ordinary sort of like cat dog type, like cat camel type exercise and that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. like planks. The other group used the PMA. And so 50% recovered, just normally with that, any intervention. Of the group used PMF, 97% recovered mm. from the back injury. So my back pain was gone the next day. I felt great. Where do you get this type of therapy? It's going to put me out of a job. Well, the, uh, this is something that I think that physio should be looking into. I think this is something that um, for people who suffer from chronic pain, rheumatoid arthritis, um, even inflammatory issues in the gut, 
um, be an invaluable tool for them. I, I really recommend you look into it. P P M F. P E M F. Pulsed P electromagnetic oh. field therapy. Cool. Okay. So you can't get a good system in Australia. I'll say it straight up. Uh, the ones that are out there are just earth-based frequencies, and that's not enough. Like you need a high gauss setting uh, to get the penetrative depth to reach a lot of the tissue source. Yeah, the sort of source of pain, right? And you know, particularly for things like uh, this is interesting. It, it improves your mood if you do it around your head. It fixes like depression. Like, Actually, that's where so I've heard strange. it before because it, I think something to do with like the brain waves. Is that, was that what it, that's, that's where I saw it first. This is, I, I haven't actually found a, um, an explanation that completely maps how it does this, but I did read a comparative study of how effective it was relative to um, uh, regular antidepressants, SSRIs. Um, so they did uh, a study on treatment resistant depression and the outcomes related to recovery using uh, the pills and outcomes rec uh, regarding the PMF. So, with the antidepressants, the I believe the uh, response rate was around about thirteen percent in terms of self-reported um, improvement, as in overcoming uh, treatment-resistant depression. In the PMF group, it was sixty percent. When I did it, it, it like absolutely improved my mood, and I didn't expect that. I'm not doing a hard sell because currently we don't actually even stop in the store. The, the hard work now is for us working out how to reverse engineer this technology and build it from the ground up. So we're having to work with companies from Switzerland, uh, importing these units, uh, getting electrical engineers here to uh, help us build uh, product lines, manufacturing, so we can actually mass produce it ourselves. Not simple. Wow, okay. Um. All right, so that's a pretty extensive life story thus far. But uh, now I wanted just to ask you a few questions just to kind of pick your brain because I'm sure you've acquired a lot of knowledge throughout your kind of life experience. Certainly try to. Yeah. So um, the first one is just because this podcast is about maximizing like all facets of life. So they include like physical, you know, mental, spiritual, emotional, um, financial. Uh, for someone who's, I guess, starting on that journey, in your experience, what do you think is the first... Um, sector one should focus on? I think you should get your, your mind right. And I think that this comes down to a process of self-conditioning. I think that um, you can absolutely hypnotize yourself. Um, but I was thinking, someone shared something the other day. They, they showed me something on procrastination. And I couldn't relate to the video, but I was like, I remember when I could. There was a time in my life when I would just sit there and be like, oh, go on YouTube and you know, I'll do whatever I need to do later. Maybe I'll do it tomorrow. And I was like a serial procrastinator. I did not access my ability um, to the best that I could. But then something changed. I, I definitely think that there was something that I did within myself to uh, pattern my thinking such that I became the person I needed to be to be, you know, a successful director, whatever else, you know, making a fair bit of money, um, achieving what I wanted to do. And I think that starts with the smallest habits. I think, you know, the first thing you should do is look at your morning. Maybe actually even before that, before you go to bed, sit there, look out the window, you know, look at the view and think, what do I really want? You know, what kind, what kind of life do I want to be living? How does that look? How does that feel? Um, what am I passionate about? You know, what, what do I really enjoy doing? Like, what do I feel drawn? Do more of that. 
wake up the next morning, get excited, do some of that. But what I would say is that you, sh- you should start your day by doing things that are like micro-productive, right? So set up a series of small wins. There's that great speech that went around with like the make your bed thing. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely true. Start yeah. with creating a bit of momentum. The first yeah. thing I do every day, like I don't have an elaborate ritual or anything, like I have a copy straight into the emails. First thing I do. And then, you know, while I'm doing that, I've got the news playing in the background so I can get an understanding of what's going on for the day. And I'm just straight in the saddle. You know, what are we tackling today? And then I'm writing my list of action items. And the way that I map it out is I have like five nodes. You know, I'll have business one, business two, um, admin, what I need to achieve at the back end. Um, I'll have even like fun goals, like things that are sort of um, life related. And then I just list all the action items. What are the, all the things we can do? And you get like a bright highlighter and with every single one, you just you strap it off. And you look at the end of the day and you see how many you, you crossed off and you're like, wow, yeah, I did a lot. It's very satisfying. Yeah, and I'd say for people, like you don't have to sit there and be Mr. CEO from day one. Like your list might be get up, stack the dishwasher. 100%. It could be the smallest things and you should be proud of yourself for doing yes. that. Yes. And if you do that every day and then you think, Hey, that felt good doing that and not just sitting there reaching for immediate gratification from something on my phone. I feel good. Yeah. I feel that serotonin flush. And then that's where the kicker lies, right? Once you realize that I'm getting more out of doing what I feel like I should be doing and getting that intrinsic glow of like accomplishment and feeling good about what I'm doing in life. Once you start chasing that dragon, you're good. Like yeah. that's, that's it. Learn to chase the right dragon. Mm. not the dopamine dragon one's, so. one's so short lasting too you know of all the things what was the hardest point of your life and um, I guess you kind of already talked about it like that spiritual journey of being in prison mm. um, but w- would you say that's that was the hardest point in your life oh absolutely without a doubt mm. and there's nothing that compares mm. the, the, the pit of it's literally the pit of despair mm. and um I remember, like, a particular instance, like, you know, the, the charges that they were hitting me with were, were not inconsiderable. Like, they were trying to give me something that could give, give me, like, 25 years. Mm-hmm. That's your life. Mm-hmm. That is literally your life over. Although that's, that would never happen, that's still on the table. And it's still, like, a heavy situation to be in, right? It's shocking. And so, dealing with that, realizing, of course, that mortality is also imminent. You've got people around you committing suicide because they can't handle it. Um, you've got people getting taken out and you've got to realize that life is brutal. There is no way out. You are not going to get out of this alive. Guaranteed debt. But in the meantime, you can make something out of it. And you should feel this urgency to do something that actually fills you with pride, satisfaction and joy in the intervening time. And like, all I took from being in this dark place was this absolute fire and lust to actually live Wow, a good life. You know, I don't want to live with conflict. I don't want to um, live with anything but love and light and progress. That is what I want. And, you know, it was hard, man. Like, you know, you get to a position where you think there's no way out. Mm. And, you, of course, you think about taking yourself out. Mm. Those thoughts will come to you. And I think a lot of people have felt suicidal, you know, for, for 
other things that they've battled with in life. But I think everyone should take solace in the fact that there is literally nothing you can't overcome if you apply your mind to it. The and mind, then yeah. if you can fight yourself out of a negative energetic spiral, and this is the kick. This is the one thing that I'll say to people that might make people think. Is that I feel like life is a series of energetic spirals. Everything moves in a spiral fashion, even time. And I think you're either caught in a, a negative downward spiral where everything's getting worse. Yes. Yeah. Or you can invert the flow yep. and start building. And I, I, that is the hardest point. Yes. When you're spiraling down and there's every reason to be upset and depressed and you have no dopamine to actually use to motivate yourself to reverse that energetic spiral, if you can get from that point to just starting to trend back up, I'm proud of you. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like, I am very proud of you. Mm-hmm. You're, you're worthy of being a hero to someone. It's way harder than Because that's the hardest there. thing to do in life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. Cool. What are like three traits you think... Oh, sorry, not three things that every man should be doing. Um, they're just quick fire, these. Yeah, I think every man should be um, training and competitive in some capacity. You know, I think there's this mentality of like, oh, I'm competing with the man in the mirror. No, you're not. You know, it's, it's player versus player. Get used to competition, but make it healthy competition. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like you got on stage, mm-hmm. you know how hard it is, but it was a rewarding exercise, wasn't it? You loved it, right? Yeah. It's a good feeling and you should be proud of yourself, right? That's something that people should be doing. It might not be competitive in a bodybuilding sense, um, but yeah, like I think they need to be training. And I think that could be, oh, so what's about doing jiu-jitsu and stuff now, whatever, um, combat training. That's something that every man should do. Mm-hmm. Training for something. Yeah. Like an athlete is always going to be more employable than someone who's just fat sitting on the couch. I can guarantee you that. Mm. Any, like I've employed people simply because they're elite athletes. I knew that person is disciplined. Mm. They know what it takes to work hard to achieve something. Cool. And, uh, so, cool. Yeah. so the first one is training. First one is training in some capacity. Yeah. Because if only for the fact that it builds your mind up. Yeah. Um, beyond that, I think that every man should focus on doing something to improve his financial situation. And I think that should just be a thought exercise and not necessarily one agreed. I think that really what comes with that is choice and freedom. Um, you're able to uh, command more energy to do what you want to do in life, which in a life of ever-shrinking opportunities and choices is ever more important to do. I think you're going to get more out of, and you're going to feel like more of a man if you can support your family financially. For sure. For sure. And Or you know, buy something nice for your girlfriend, pay for a holiday somewhere. Um, buy a nice place to live to build a family whatever it might be it doesn't matter but I think that um, don't just be focused on the gym because if you think that you know just getting lifting weights and getting abs is like the be all and end all for getting a partner like you're sorely mistaken because there are things that people value way beyond that Mm -hmm. so learning how to create value third thing third thing I think is building character I think that a soulful man is a good man. I think that a man that has been through adversity um, is someone who's going to be useful. I don't think that people should suffer unnecessarily, but I don't think people should wish for an easy, easy life. And I think they should choose things that are hard to do. And that might not necessarily be in training. It might be something in a completely different endeavor. You might be an academic. You might be choosing to um, further your field in a scientific discipline. I think you know that's a noble discipline. I think that we need to have this resurgence of... Um, pride in people who are doing things that are, are genuinely good for society, like nurses and uh, people who are serving a, a critical role who are sort of heavily undervalued for that. Um, and yeah, so 
there's, there's so many things that men need to do now because yeah. it's, it's a hard game out there now, mm -hmm. right? It's not enough to be a normal guy anymore. Mm -hmm. um, you're not going to be competitive. You're not necessarily going to be living the way that a normal guy would have 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and like I said, there's a lot you've got to do to increase your list of available choices as a mate. Mm -hmm. so. Awesome, man. What do you think is the... Well, I guess for you personally. Oh, yeah, for you personally, what's the number one trait you look for in a partner? Number one? Yeah. Um, companionship, right? I think that's... Um, that sounds kind of vague and nebulous, but it's like... It's more than just like... Um, one particular character trait. It's like a sum of characters, right? It's someone who you can spend time with and enjoy spending time with and never get sick of spending time with them. Um, for me, it's someone who's like, a, has a curious mind, intellectually minded. That's something that I like because it's like something you can really wrestle with and engage with. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think that's super important for forming a, a strong relationship. It's just taking interest in each other, right? Asking questions. Or like coming across interesting stuff and sharing with each other and discuss discussing or taking the time to really get to the root of who someone really is like the core of their being understand like them from you know the, the toes up it's like curiosity yeah. in the person yeah exploratory like and i think that in today's sort of like um discardable culture like people don't even take the time to learn much beyond someone else's name mm. And so I think a lot of women mm. are very unhappy with that. Like they just feel utterly disconnected, underserved. Um, they're not appreciated. And I think even men do too, to be yeah. perfectly frank. So. Both ways. Yeah, that's a good one actually. What have you been <laughs> reading or learning that you think everyone should know? Now, recently. Okay, I think everyone should be reading as much as they can on every single topic. It needs to be across everything. You know, science, finance, you know, politics even, you need to be reading broadly. And I think that, let's say for young men in particular, something might be very useful. Uh, go and read Edward Griffin's uh, The Creature of Jekyll Island. I think that's a very good book for understanding how the world really works and, and who it serves and how, where we're headed and how things have to change over time. There is no other way it can change but the way that it will. Interesting. Can you repeat, so, the, repeat the book? It's called The Creature of Jekyll Island by Edward Griffin. Okay. And this book is about how money is created, basically. Mm. So the institution of the Federal Reserve, or even the history of banking all the way back to the 1400s in the Italian banking houses. It sounds boring as hell, but it's treated like a, um, sort of almost like a murder mystery, like who done it, who screwed over humanity the hardest. But uh, you understand uh, basically the game you're playing. And if you're playing a game where you don't even understand the rules, you're gonna like lose. how are you going to win at it? Yeah, right? yeah. You absolutely need to understand um, the environment you're operating in. And most people have no fucking clue. Mm. Let's be real. So that's a good place to start for okay. a lot of young guys. Awesome, man. So you've achieved, I guess, a level of financial success. I know you want to keep going, but um, you've also mentioned that you've, you've lived in the eastern suburbs, which is, I guess, where a lot of like rich people in Sydney live. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess... What was your experience like rubbing shoulders with, I guess, Sydney's elite? Um, what did you notice in these type of people in terms of like similarities? And um, do you think all these people just were born into rich families or were these a lot of like self-made people? Yeah, there's a lot experience? of dynastic wealth, let's be real. Um, what was that? Dynastic wealth. Oh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. made yeah. generations yes. beforehand. Yeah. 
Um, but I think the, the fundamental difference between people who are wealthy and those who are not is that they can see through the illusions. And they are masters of illusions, even if that is um, being usefully deluded. That sounds really weird, but um, there's, there's people who like, like confidence peddlers, people like, uh, like Andrew Tate, is someone who uh, is like hyper self-confident to the point that it is kind of delusional. And it's, but it's useful because people believe in that it serves the purpose and ultimately they become what they imagine themselves to be first. It's almost like summoning, right? It's like in terms of like building a reality just through sheer intention. And this is like actually the essence of like Freemasonry. And a lot of these esoteric secret societies that they understand the power of the, the generative mind. That's the G in Freemasonry. Um, for the record, I did not kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they're, they're talking about uh, more or less the um, effect consciousness has on material reality which is tangible and real. And I think that, much like in the Matrix, uh, our world is the product of a collective unconscious. We build this. And when you see disease in the collective unconscious, it filters through in the decay of society in a material sense too. You'll see it, like the homeless appear in the street, you know, the broken window doesn't get fixed. You know, There's a wound in society somewhere down deep in the collective unconscious and it manifests itself in, in everything. And uh, I know that sounds really out there, but this is absolutely how people at the top think. And uh, it's something that once you learn how to master yourself, it's an extremely powerful tool. So Learning how to set intentions. Okay. Because when you just said that, it just sounded very depressing. No, because so, it's something that's incredibly empowering. Can you, can you elaborate a little bit more? Okay. So I, I, set, a, a very I set very clear goals. Yeah. Year one of business, I was like, I want to set a goal of six figures. So every day I was like, what do I have to do in six figures? Oh, okay, yeah, I think I right? see And so that was my intention. Every single decision I made through my, throughout my day was made relative to that, that intention. Yeah, yeah, okay, I understand. The intention is concretized. It yes. cannot shift. Yes. It will not shift. Everything else revolves around that. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. yeah. So in, in a sense, this is where the essence of the generative mind is you set something that must be done and it will be done because the sum of your actions makes it happen. Yes. Because you're obsessed with it. Yes. And it's the greater the goal, the greater the departure from your current reality, the longer it's going to take. It doesn't mean it won't happen. And so this is why I'd sort of encourage people to dream in the limit and start to sort of think that it's more than just a, uh, a fantasy, particularly if your actions are oriented towards it every day. Mm. So, so what you were alluding to before is a lot of people are not setting intentions and therefore their life is like, yeah, and you'll see this. You can walk around, you'll see people who are intentionless. And there is no purpose to whether, you know, they're not walking with any degree of certainty anywhere in particular. They're aimless. You can tell in the conversation they have, there's no direction. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that, I mean, maybe I'm a very direct person. Once you get to know me, I start talking, I'm quite forceful. That's absolutely who I am. Mm -hmm. You know, it's something that you either have or you don't. Mm -hmm. um, can be cultivated, and it goes back to what I was talking about, self-conditioning. But yeah. this is absolutely what you need. It's funny because like if we go back to like the physical, not you can tell someone's been intentional physically by their physical body. Absolutely, right? Yeah. There are people who just never change in the gym. Yeah. They get leaner, they get bigger, they just sort of stay the same. Or just a, like a, a beast person. <coughs> you can tell, like no one is intentional. That's an unintentional existence. You're, you're a victim of life, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and being you know, broke too, right? 
Yeah. No one is like I don't, I don't look down on people who are broke because sometimes that can be beyond your, beyond your agency. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like, I, I don't look down on people. For, like, I don't like that way of denigrating brokies or whatever. Like, you know, that sort of becomes a bit of a trendy thing. It's like, that's not cool. It's not useful. Um, and there are people who may well be broke in that sense, but people who live uh, lives that perhaps are worthy of admiration, like a Tibetan monk, for instance. Right. I think they're rich in another, another way. Yeah. It's, it's wealth is intangible. Yeah. Cool. So. Awesome, man. So, look, I would say the main, I think the main things you're currently working on is Helios and Eagle. Those are your like main businesses. Um, but if people want to like follow your journey, like I'm sure this is going to be more interesting things happening. But I guess, do you want to just kind of explain like uh, where people can find Helios or Eagle if they're interested in these like anti-aging or like supplements? And I guess like if they wanted to just get to know you more, like where they can find you? Yeah, sure. I mean, first of all, come to my page uh, at Oscar Mayers on Instagram. Um, and you can find the various brands on Instagram too. So at the Eagle Elite for Eagle Research Labs and at Helios Biotechnology for the anti-aging stuff. Um, equally, you can go and find the website. So we've got um, www.eagleresearchlabs.com. Uh, and then we've also got um, www.heliosbiotechnology.com. And there might be another business coming soon. So this is something to do, I think, in another dimension, which I want to get into, which is mentoring. Yeah. I haven't actually announced that publicly, and it's not something that I consider to be that profitable, but I like teaching people. So Give back, I guess. Yeah, I had a dream. It sounds weird. It's, it's, okay. It's cool. like, this is what you should go on. Okay. Okay. Awesome. And I always listen to intuition. You always should. It mm. will lead you the right way, mm. no matter what. So, Cool, man. And this is the final question, but pretty much, why do you think 1990 everything is important? Wow. Okay. Well, what's the alternative, right? You know, you make it safely to the grave. What kind of life is that? You know, I think unless you leave it all in the field, I think, what are you doing? What, like, what's your purpose here? And I'm always one of those people who goes like above and beyond. I remember at nationals, two tongue quads, you know, I'd rip my hands open the deadlift. I could limp me home, um, but came second to Sebastian Rog, right? <laughs> I left it on the field. I, I was like, I, I don't even know how I finished doing the deadlift with no legs, but I did. And that's exactly the mentality you need with life. It's just this like headlong charge into it. And imagine that you're running through a forest blindfolded and you're gonna hit a tree eventually. That's just life, you know, it's gonna hurt, but you just keep going. And eventually you get to where you wanna go. Um, so I think that now, particularly with things accelerating around the world, your time is running out. I think your individual agency is coming to an end if you do not take action and you do not want to be a sitting dark and vulnerable. You want to have options. So the time to take action is now and there is nothing else you should be doing other than giving everything you've got to whatever it is you want to be building have urgency about what it is you're doing because nothing is guaranteed. I'm serious though. Like I think that people, they need to have something behind them, like a, a, a cracking whip and they need to set that for themselves. That is the core challenge of every entrepreneur or businessman is like, how do you have, um, you know, that, that impetus urgency. to do things without yeah. someone telling you what to do. Yeah. You've got to be that guy. Yeah. So you got to cultivate that 
internal monologue or whatever it takes to get there. Wow. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me, Oscar. Um, it was a pleasure. Uh, man, there's a lot to digest, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, guys, if you're interested in continuing to follow Oscar's journey, you can check him out on his Instagram. Um, but that's pretty much all for today's podcast. If, you're, if you want to keep on following the podcast, like, comment, and subscribe on whatever platform you're watching or listening to. We'll check you out next time. Peace out.